Welcome to the Be Effective Podcast. This episode is sponsored by Effective Fitness Training, daily workouts for police officers. Join us in the fight to end the mediocre fitness standard. Effective Fitness has designed a workout program specifically for police officers. To get stronger, pack on muscle, improve mobility, increase stamina, benefit other necessary disciplines like jiu-jitsu, and achieve peak performance. Their team of physical therapists and strength coaches use a minimal effective dose method to deliver the most results within the least amount of work to avoid injuries and setbacks. There are a lot of features of the Effective Fitness program. For more information, check out effective.fitnesstraining on Instagram. That's effective.fitnesstraining. On Monday, Effective Fitness is dropping the tactical bodybuilding cycle. I highly suggest you check that out. Back to episode two, Suresh Madhaven. Suresh is a 13-year law enforcement veteran, founder and CEO of 221B Tactical. It was an honor to have him on this podcast and enjoy episode two with Suresh. How's it, dude, how was your trip to Montana? Montana was awesome, right? I got to tell you. Yeah, I mean, it was beautiful weather. Um, So I made the mistake of going to Montana the last time in the middle of winter. And it was brutal, brutally cold. So um, this time around, it was a lot better. Um, and it was beautiful. It was, you know, warm, right? nice. I got to see a little bit of Montana. That Kalispell area is really cool. And, um, of course, getting to see Andy and do the podcast was really, really cool. What did, he have the, uh, did he have the Guinness on tap when you were there? No, it was – about to be installed, so okay. I missed out on the Guinness oh, man. experience. Well, you'll have to go back because it was uh, – I mean, Andy was cool and everything, but the man had a keg of Guinness in the studio. I mean, that's – In the studio. Inside. This, I mean, it was in arm's reach. It was very dangerous. I kept eyeing it. I kept eye-fucking it the entire time. Yeah. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> I was looking at it, and I was like, man, I need a I – think, I think we need a drink. And he's like, yeah, so we – Yeah, I bet. Oh, man, it was, it was such a good time, but – Dude, I am uh, – did you see 50 Cent, what he posted? What he posted? Yeah. No. I, I saw that he's supposedly now backing Trump. Oh, he did. On, yeah. his, on his Instagram feed, he posted a picture of Biden's tax plan for like New York and California. And he was all like, fuck Biden, vote Trump. Like on his no. on his Instagram page, wow, that's huge! It wow, was, it was so crazy, man. And it, I think he said something along the lines of like, "I don't care if Trump doesn't like black people, just vote Trump." Like he's like, "Cause I'm telling you, man, you start fucking with people's money, they don't like that. No, they they I don't know. they don't like that, dude. I don't think. I mean, no one likes that. I know. I mean, dude, it was like sixty two percent or something out fucking rages. Sixty two percent, man." Yeah, I don't know yeah. how people. I don't know how people even would want to. St- I mean, that's why everybody's leaving, dude. That's I mean, that's why everybody's leaving New York and they're and yep. shit. They're going to Montana. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I got to tell you, you know, going to Montana was like a pipe dream for a lot of people for a long time because you know they were tied to their office. But COVID has opened up a lot of possibilities for people to live anywhere, 
and continue to work and continue to make their same income. So if you could live in Montana on a New York paycheck, you are doing very, very well. Absolutely. Because, dude, the cost of living, I mean, uh, Joey and Kyle, they're two guys that work for Police Post Training, and they live in California, and they're telling me the cost of living. I mean, just a 1,600-square-foot house on no land is like $800,000, $900,000 in California. That is outrageous. Just to put it into perspective for y'all, it, where I live in South Carolina, a house like that is about $250,000. Mm-hmm. So, and that's, and that's with some property, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, and that's, that's crazy, man. That's what, that's what I'm saying though. If you go to someplace like Montana or Idaho and you're able to maintain that same income stream, do it. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's the key. That is the key. Yeah, man. So, um, two, two, me tactical. That's you. Yeah. Suresh. So tell people what, what two, two, one is. Um, the company or what does two, two, one B stand for? I actually just found out what it stood for. I just, <laughs> I, actually, I, I did some investigation and I did not know I'm reading this right off the two, two, one B website, two, two, one B Baker street was homes addressed in London as written by Doyle. So literally the world's famous Sherlock Holmes. I had no yeah. idea. I thought it was like some call sign you may have had or something like that. That's, that's awesome, dude. That's such a play on words. That's, that's, that's phenomenal. So yeah. talk about how it, talk about how it happened. Talk about why, how, um, so, uh, I was on the job. I, so I originally was going to school, uh, to study medicine. Um, my original path was to go into surgery. Uh, got into a very good, uh, program, um, and, uh, was in the program. It was, a uh, essentially they try to accelerate it and cut a year off of your total undergrad and uh, medical school. So I was just doing some advanced classes a little earlier on, um, trying to take the MCATs a little bit earlier. So you just kind of push through uh, a little bit quicker. Um, And so I was on that path and, you know, I was probably more than three quarters of the way through it. And I realized it was not something I wanted to do. So. I shifted gears. I was in limbo. Let me be honest. I was in limbo for a while there, um, trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, of course I was still in school and, you know, kind of staying the course to, you know, do my work within the program for my pre-med classes and my other undergraduate classes. And, um, uh, then nine 11 happened and, uh, nine 11 was like a huge, and I was in New York city, you know, um, right. I, I actually live, um, lived and my mother still does on one of the five boroughs and it was like a whole, like, I mean, to say it was like a surreal experience doesn't even do it justice. Um, and you know, so then I was kind of like, and it kind of really hit home because there was a company I was working for at the time. It was a biometric research company. I was doing some research work for them and, um, they had a, a showroom, uh, in, the World Trade Center on like the 80 something floor. So it was kind of wild to realize that that was happening really close to home. So um, I decided that, you know, I, I didn't want to go down that path. It was a path that my mom definitely was pushing me down uh, because of 
where she comes from, her background, if you know, you don't become a doctor or something, you know, you're, you're like, you're, you're nothing. Um, so um, I was like, you know, I, it took me a while to like really just kind of build up the courage to say I, didn't, I wasn't going to do medicine. And uh, I wanted to join the military. I really wanted to join the Navy. Um, a guy I went to high school with, a buddy of mine that I grew up with, uh, that we played sports with, you know, football, wrestled. He went to the Navy and he ultimately became a SEAL. And um, I was like, in my mind, like, I'd always like read about them and I had read the book Rogue Warrior by Marcinko and I had like done the whole nine and watched the movie, you name it. And I was like, I, I, I think this is what I need to do. Like, I think this is what I could do. Right. And um, I was like, yeah. So, you know, I, you know, I, I started exploring that path and my mom quickly put a violent stop to that. Any thought of going into the military was quickly shut down. And um, so I ultimately uh, looked at law enforcement. One of my best friends growing up, my best friend to this day still growing up, uh, was a cop. And, you know, he kind of, he loved it. He said, you know, you get to go out there on your own every day, do your own thing, help people. And um, when you're out there, although you have a supervisor, when you're out in the patrol car, you're kind of your own boss and you're kind of doing your own thing. So it's kind of nice. Yeah. So I started looking at that. If I wasn't going to be able to go into the Navy and try to become a SEAL, I was like, All right, I, guess, I guess let me try this law enforcement option. And uh, I ultimately got hired in a town that uh, had a little bit of a history of not being um, kind to people of color. Let me put it that way. And um, that was the town I applied in because everyone told me that was the top police agency in the right. state of New Jersey. And I wanted to go for the best. And it was highly regarded throughout the state as the best. Um, and uh, so I, I applied, took a long time. It was a crazy process. And I talked about a lot about that on Andy's podcast. Yeah. yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I, I got hired, you know, despite everyone telling me that I wouldn't get hired, I got hired. And um, that began my 13-year career. Um, while there... Uh, of course, wearing body armor was a wake-up call to me because, you know, some guys that were working there had some military experience, so they had worn body armor before. And I was like, man, this is, like, really uncomfortable. I cannot believe you got to wear this heavy, hot thing all day, every day. And I promised my mom, that was the one thing she'd said. She's like, you can never go out there without your bulletproof vest. So I was like, okay, yeah. Um, so I quickly realized that this was a major concern, not only for me, but for every officer I worked with. Everyone was complaining about it. And officers at other agencies were complaining about it. And it was a one, I mean, cops bitch a lot. Cops complain a lot. We know that. <laughs> you don't right? say. Like, <laughs> about everything. You know, it's like, the, you know, the joke, like no matter what. Got, like during the holidays, people would bring in these trays of food, right, to headquarters, you know. <laughs> trays of pasta and meatballs and turkey and all this stuff and you know bring like utensils and everything, everything. yeah everything and like there'd be these huge spreads cookies cakes and you know, it was very nice and you know people liked the police back then and um bring it and you know typical cops would be like they didn't bring salt yeah i can't believe they didn't Seriously? bring salt yeah yeah no salt like, yeah, I'm like, you gotta be kidding me. So like, that was like the typical cop, right? Like, you know, 
Always complaining about something. Never satisfied. So um, I, I, I saw that although everyone was always complaining about something, the thing, the common thing that everyone was complaining about was the vest and how uncomfortable it was. Sure. So, you know, I had, you know, studied biochemistry in school. I had to take a lot of physics classes and a lot of the biological science classes for pre-med. Um, so, you know, I said, you know, what? I think you could, let me see if I could do something about this. So I had taken a, this uh, business mindset course. And in that course, there was a gentleman who worked in the fabric textile field. Okay. And I, I reached out to him. I said, hey, listen, there's this concern for cops that I have an idea on how to solve. And I think if we solve it, we're going to be able to help a ton of cops and uh, probably put a few dollars in our pocket at the same time. And sure. he kind of was like, so what is it? And I told him, he's like, huh, okay. So when I started explaining to him the problem, he started to realize more in depth of just how severe it was. Cause guys on my squad were breaking out in rashes and, Guys had skin infections. Oh, yeah. On oh, yeah. Heat creams, yeah. gold bond powder and all this stuff, you know, and they were just suffering. Um, and ultimately, I broke out with one of these rashes on my, on my chest and on my stomach as well. Um, it's just, you know, a heat rash that, you know, because you can't ever give your body a break because you got to wear the vest every right. day. Um, it just got worse and worse. So um, ultimately, after a lot of trial and error, developed uh, what's now today, the Max Drive Vest, where we d I designed the material, a 3D material, and this was right when 3D printing, like people, if you said 3D printing to someone, they looked at you like you had like three heads. They weren't quite right. sure what you were talking about. So I was able to go overseas and capitalize on it uh, where it was already a thing, and I was able to develop uh, a material, that our now patented Max Drive material, and actually turn that into a vest. So the first thing I got was a big square patch of material. I had to come home, cut it up, sew it, and duct tape the edges because I didn't know how to sew edges and um, wear it under my uniform to test it. And eventually I fine-tuned it and sure. it worked out and it was a hit. We got written up by Police One. Um, we sold out at the first trade show we went to, which was Police Security Expo uh, here in Atlantic City, New Jersey. And that was it. It went viral. I mean, cops from all over the world we're yep. hitting our website. Our website crashed uh, in the beginning because uh, we had this like puny, like garbage website, like that, like kind of like we built in like website in a box. Right. So then right, my partner right, right. and I said, okay, we got to like take this serious. This is like really getting big. Um, so we decided to, you know, really turn it into like a real company. And that's all she wrote. I mean, it started in my garage here in New Jersey and it turned into now. We just moved to a broom. We, we moved to New York City, Times Square, and now we're in a. We just had to move to a bigger office in Manhattan, New York City, which we're oh, trying wow. to get out of New York City for obvious reasons. The, the city is imploding, um, and uh, the company's grown like exponentially uh, from the days of me being in the garage. And that's solely on the success of the Max Drive vest. You know, we have other products now that I've personally developed: needle-resistant gloves, cut-resistant gloves. Uh, a line of antibacterial, anti-odor base layers, great for, you know, first responders. All stuff that wasn't out there already that I saw there was a need for as a cop working the street. And I was on patrol. I was never in the detective bureau. I right. was never in the school. I was never in one of these, like, cushy community policing roles. I was in the patrol car every day for my entire career. So 
Um, I really had, you know, that was, and at sometimes I would complain about that because I wanted opportunities, but I wasn't given those opportunities to get into those other roles. But, you know, it was a, it was a curse, but it was also a blessing where it led me to innovate and have the ideas for more of the products, uh, like the hands-free flashlight glove, the extremity glove with the built-in yeah. uh, flashlight, ripping cars on the side of the road, patting people down, all the stuff that I said, you know what? I hate holding this flashlight in my hand because every time I'm trying to search somebody or run DWI testing, uh, field sobriety tests, all that stuff, this, it was getting in my way. And I would always do one of these or kind of one of these or something. Sure. And I just said, you know, one day I, start, I duct taped it to my patrol glove. And then I moved up to Velcro. And then I moved up to magnets. And then I finally fine-tuned it where I was able to find a manufacturer to shrink the light, get a pressure pad to put it inside the glove. And now I had this super bright light, very low profile on the back of the glove that I had both my hands to do the job. And like little things like that, like I saw other guys complaining about the same thing and I too was complaining and I just capitalized on it and, you know, made what was needed. And that's, and that's extremely important just to kind of give you guys an idea too that the gloves he's talking about, um, we've posted videos of them body cam footage of them actually in action. I believe it was an officer involved shooting. I can't remember exactly where it was, but it was an officer involved shooting where uh, the individual was shot in the arm. I can't remember, but it was, um, and he, I sent it to Suresh as soon as, as soon as I saw the video, cause his gloves have a very distinguished pattern on the outside of the gloves. And I said, Hey man, this is your glove right here. And it, and it was, again, the purpose, the reason why I sent it to him and something that's really cool is we, all, is we always talk about PPE, right? So personal protective equipment. Well, when you're dealing with somebody that you do not know and, they, and they're leaking bodily fluids, the last thing you want to do is touch someone you don't know with your bodily fluids with your bare hands. So his gloves actually do have a built-in 360 barrier inside, which I think is really cool. So you have that protection, the needle-resistant protection. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And you also have that 360-degree barrier so that if you do have to go hands-on with somebody that is bleeding or you don't know what's in their pockets, you're protected. And that's extremely important, guys. There's, I'd say there's no difference between, between wearing a bulletproof vest and wearing protective gloves when you're searching somebody down because a dirty needle can kill you just as much as a bullet. So we just have to, slower. Yeah, just, just slower. it's just it's just much slower. It's much more expensive. Yeah. It's a lot more probably painful because it's just a longer process, right? I, yes. I know of cops that have died from bloodborne pathogens. Yeah, and it's uh, and it's extremely preventable. It's just like why don't you carry a tourniquet, right? It's yeah. Something that's like hey, a twenty-four dollar piece of equipment, you know, gloves. It doesn't matter even if they're two hundred dollar gloves, which they're not. But if they're two hundred dollar gloves, I mean, you wish you to spend two hundred dollars. You know what I mean? Yep. So that's, yep. that's where it's kind of like guys and this, and this stuff's not expensive. Like it's, it's, this thing is, is especially with the max drive vest. If you're in these Southern States, trust me, I was a cop in South Carolina and Holy shit. When it's 110 degrees and 90% humidity and, I, and you're looking for a little relief because you, you think about it, that's going to affect your performance. Like you're looking at less than a hundred dollars, right? For the max dress for the max drive vest 4.0 is less than a hundred dollars. Yeah. It's, phenomenal and so i mean you look at that over like a 25 or 30 year career and it's yeah. less than a penny a day that's right so so you know from his experience as a 13 year police officer going through the process and also just just, just for y'all to mention 
Suresh is black. So when he says it was hard to get in during his time, <laughs> this is a whole, <laughs> I think we didn't specify that, but that's a whole we're definitely going to dive yeah. into that for sure. You know, cause that's, yeah. you know, cause you know, that's definitely something we're definitely going to talk about, but for someone to go into a, a very prominent agency at that time period, come out to build a, a very successful, continually growing business is extremely, you know, is extremely impressive. And obviously there was, what Suresh probably a little bit of hard work that you probably had to throw in there um, and a little bit of determination. And we'll, and again, bring it into that too, but yeah. Yeah. As a cop in New Jersey, how starting out, what, what was your mindset? Let's say first week on the job out of the Academy FTO completed, let's say you completed FTO and you're, you're by yourself first week on the job. What is your, if you can remember that far back, what is your thought process? Um, I got to tell you, one of the first things that I remember on my first shift by myself, I mean, it's hard to describe that feeling, that very first shift after you're released from FTO, where you're in roll call and they don't assign you a second officer, right? So you break roll call and now rather than setting up a car with your, with your training officer, you're putting your patrol bag on the passenger seat, you sit in the driver's seat, you're logging in that computer, you're doing all the safety checks on the car, all the equipment checks, and you're nervous because you're, you know, you're hoping you're not missing anything. And for that first time, when you put that car in drive and you pull out of headquarters and you get on that radio and you say 10-8, meaning in our department that's available, um, this feeling went over me that I knew I was ready, but I also knew there was so much I didn't know. And there was so much that I knew I had an experience on FTO, although the FTO program was, uh, pretty, you know, pretty, uh, uh, intensive from the standpoint of, you know, learning the town and learning calls. Um, there were still a ton of things you don't know. And you, obviously you don't see, um, they, they were pretty good about sending senior officers on any kind of call that was going to be involved. Pretty much any call, they would send a senior officer to kind of, you know, right. pull up, back you up, check on you, make sure you're okay, things like oh, that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I remember uh, right when I left headquarters, I remember wondering to myself, I can't, like, and this is kind of crazy to say, but I was like, like, they're trusting me right now. To, I was I was twenty two. Yeah, I think I was. I think I was, I, I was twenty four. Twenty two. Yeah. Right. And twenty four. Uh, I'm like they. I have a gun on me. I have a shotgun in the back of my car. I'm like, <laughs> I, do they know that? Like, I'm like, a I'm a kid. Like, like I'm a kid. Like, I'm a I kid. Yeah. Have a drink last year. Yeah. You know. Right. And I was like, wow, this is like, I felt, I felt honored, humbled and scared that they bestowed that trust upon me. But I also felt that responsibility to now uphold that honor and, you know, say, you know what, I got to go out here and do the job that they hired me to do. And this is a department that in 2003 had never hired a minority officer ever in their history. No Asian, no Hispanic, nothing except pure white. In 2003, they had never, and the department had been around for quite some time, okay? 
So for come 2003 to have never hired uh, anyone uh, of any kind of minority was crazy. So now they took a sh chance on me. And I'm sure there was a lot of people in the town that didn't want to take a chance on me. Um, so, but I, you know, I, I did very well in a test. Um, yeah. I did very well in an interview and I know that I deserved it. I worked hard. Nothing was given to me. I mean, I didn't know the chief. I didn't know the mayor. I didn't have any cops in my family. I didn't have my dad that worked there, you know, uh, prior, a lot of guys that worked there, their father worked there. So of course they got hired, you know, um, or they were cousins of the mayor or there was always some kind of in with a lot of the guys that worked there. Um, not all of them, but right. you know, a lot of the guys where they grew up in town. Um, and I got to tell you, um, I had nothing. I had nothing. I had nothing. I came in there cold. I was a kid from New York that came to Jersey and tried to get into this. And, you know, people were like, man, you're like Jackie Robinson here, you know, breaking the mold, come in here. And, um, so I felt like I, I had a lot of pressure. I put a yeah, lot of absolutely. pressure on myself because I felt like if I don't perform above what these other guys around me are performing at, I'm going to look bad and people are going to say, yes, yeah, see, see, we, sh we told you, you shouldn't have hired this guy. So um, I, every day I went out there, my uniform had to be more squared away. My boots had to be shinier. My car had to be cleaner. My equipment had to be more squared away, more locked on. My reports had to be super locked on. Everything I did had to be that many notches above what everyone else was doing. So do you think they were, with that, with that mindset of having to be better than everyone else because you were different, did you feel the need because of pressure from them? Or did you feel that just because in your own, in your own mind, you were like, I have to be better because I'm different. That's a great question. Yeah. I, I know a lot of the pressure was self-imposed. Okay. But I also, I also knew you just kind of could feel it yeah. when you're in a situation that you knew that if you didn't perform, it was not going to work out well for you. I mean, a lot of us have played sports. Many people listening to this and maybe played sports. And at some time or another, maybe early on in your sports career, or maybe you saw somebody else on a team that you played on, where they made the team, but you knew that you couldn't just kind of do what everyone else on the team was doing. Like you kind of barely made the team. So you knew that you had to show up to practice early and you need to be the last one to leave. You knew after practice you were going to clean up all the pads and all the balls and all the equipment. Do those little extra things to show that you were a team player right. and you were going a little bit above and beyond everyone else, right? Some of us joining teams, we were in that compromised position, but I've been on certain teams where I'm looking at someone else and I can tell they're that guy and they're – doing their thing and now we've also seen the person who they're that guy they just made the team by the skin of their teeth and then they come on board and they don't go above and beyond and they're not doing the things that they need to do and what happens they're gone right they're gone because the coaching staff is just waiting for a reason to get rid of that kid so i kind of had that feeling i've been in that spot before where i knew that if i gave them a reason to come down on me. I just knew they would. And I knew it wouldn't end well for me. Sure. And that's, and that's some old also to Suresh. You have this thing. Uh, what's it called? Oh yeah. Logic and common sense. 
and that that is uh, very very. I don't want to say it's it's rare because I I would like to think the majority of people have logic, right? And they and they have the ability to distinguish what is what is right, what is wrong, what is bullshit, and what is real. Um, and hopefully, if they don't do that, they they have the uh, the mental capacity to do the research, um, which yeah. which you know we we see since what since the beginning of 2020 has been a very interesting format from there. But so as your career progressed, um, you know, obviously you showed them that you knew what you were doing. You showed them, look, I'm in shape. I, I take my job seriously. I'm squared away. You guys can rely on me. I can spell. That's also one thing, man, you, you talk about report writing. I've, I've, I've read some reports and I'm, I was also guilty of this too, where I was like, Dude, do you have a high school education? And I'm I'm not oh trying to ask. And it's oh. just like, and it, it's like because you, you know if this goes to court, you know what you're going to look like, right? And it and it's just yeah. and that's also the importance of, of of education. So, you know, plus you said you were 20, 22 years old. Twenty. I think I was twenty two, going on twenty three. I think. Okay, so I was twenty four, and just and just like you said. You're in the academy. You're fresh out of the academy, and you're like, "Holy shit! I have a gun. I have a badge. I have all these tools, long guns, and now my job is to enforce the law of all people in America. In my, I mean, obviously in my jurisdiction. Yeah. But yeah. you're sitting here going, "Holy shit!" And this is where I think the public has a hard time understanding. The, the job of a police officer. Cause you think about the military, right? I, I remember Andy said something, he was 25 years old, jumping out of airplanes, doing, doing Navy SEAL shit, 25 years old, 22 years old, 24 years old. These, I mean, I just graduated college, right? Yeah. Like I was fresh out of college. Again, it's actually funny. So I actually wanted to be a CRNA uh, whenever, right. I, whenever I went into college. Cause I was like, man, I love the medical field. And then I was like, you know what? Biology is fucking hard and I'm stupid. So I'm going to go to business school. So I went to business school and I realized like business calculus, that's no joke. So then I went to a criminal justice uh, major in a political science and I was like, you know, what? I just wanted to help people. I just wanted to do something. Then, you know, I got out, joined the agency and then I put in seven years and then here I am today. And I think it's, I think it's crazy that the public doesn't really understand like they say we need better cops. They say we need, but when you got hired on, what was your starting pay? You remember? 30, 34,000. 34. Okay. I got hired. I got, I got signed on at 20, uh, 29,000. Granted the cost of living is different here in the South. Yeah. Jersey, 34,000. You're, you can't even put gas in your car. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was living in a pretty shitty part of town uh, when I got out of the Academy. Um, to the point where like I had to make sure that my patrol vehicle wasn't parked in the place where it was seen visible from the road. Um, mm. and because there would be dog shit smeared on it and all kinds of stuff. Um, and I think people need to take that in perspective when you're looking at, we need better cops, but when you're paying them 34,000, $29,000 a year, the caliber of guys that, that, that have, um, a brain, I'm not saying that cops that don't do it because again, we did it cause we wanted to serve. Right. We did it yeah. for the right reasons, but you're saying we want, you want this job to be, come do this job. We need good people to do this job, but then you want to pay them $29,000 a year when, just like you said, in New York, 
in these very expensive cities, cops can barely survive, right? And so they're wor- then they start working overtime, and they start working longer hours, and then they and then and then what? They start to get fatigued. Their health goes down. Their fitness goes down. Their training just becomes they don't want to train outside because they're tired, right? Outside of mandatory training, and I just think it's crazy that you know hearing your story, nothing's really changed from when you were there to when I started, right? Low pay training is probably, obviously it's probably progressed tactics wise, but the amount of training is probably the same. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, you know, I would have to guess. And so in that middle of your career, when did you start to realize from a training aspect, when did you start to realize that I need more training? I need better training. There were a couple of calls that I was involved in while on the job that um, I, I won't go into detail and I won't name names, but Smart. I saw things happen and I saw things go down and ultimately everyone ended up okay. However, that was, I think, sheer luck. There were a few calls that I was on that I realized that Nobody really knew what they were doing. And if something went south, everyone was going to end up dead or someone was going to end up dead. And I remember specifically looking back at those calls and saying to myself, how do we not know what to do? Like I would talk to other guys after the call and they, would, they too would express how they were concerned because they weren't quite sure what to do. And, and that's okay. I mean, obviously there's no shame in that because if you're thrown into a situation as a police officer and now you have five, six, seven years on and you have to go handle this situation that maybe is a little higher risk or what have you, and you've never been trained on how to handle it, that's not really the fault of the officer. That's the fault of the agency. Right. Correct. So, Correct. hundred percent. Yeah. So there, there was a component of me kind of feeling bad, but then I was also like, why haven't we been trained on this? Why haven't we done this during training? We'll sit there and we'll sit in a room for a whole day, every few weeks or every couple of months. Uh, and we'll learn about what to do if a tanker full of uh, dangerous chemicals rolls over and all the mom county policies about this, that, all the, like, and, you know, hazmat and who to contact and all this. Listen, it, 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 if that happens, you're calling everybody and everyone's showing up, okay? Right. We, we get it, right? <laughs> we get it. You don't need to sit in a room for an entire day every few months or every couple of months and say, okay, so now we're going to talk about uh, this and we're going to talk about I mean, it is great bloodborne pathogen training. Now, I'm not putting any of this down. It's important. It's 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 important. important. Right. However, what's important is knowing what to do on a call where maybe someone has a weapon, maybe you're entering some a building, or you're entering a situation where a subject may be armed. Like those are things. You know, motor vehicle stop. I mean, we did such little motor vehicle stop training, and it was the thing we did the most. Right. It was and I the think thing that's, we did the most. And, and I, I, I said, I, this is embarrassing. Oh, it is. And, and, it's and, uh, embarrassing. 
I think it's funny that you talk about the frequency of what cops actually do. And then you talk about the training correlated with that frequency. And I, I feel like the problem is, is we know that in-service training, block training, whatever your agency calls it, is CYA for the agency. Cover yeah. the ass of the agency. Yeah. That's all it is. It's to say okay. that if you fuck up, it's to say that, well, we trained them on this, even though it was only 30 minutes of training, we trained them on de-escalation, uh, blah, 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 right? Whatever right. it be. But, or, or my best one, we trained them on defensive tactics. They got, they got four hours this year. Four hours, right? And so just, you know, I'm mean, just like you said. You <laughs> and two hours of it was lunch. Right, right. And then, so, right. And this, the thing is, is how many of those guys are actually paying attention and not walking out, especially my biggest problem, and I can say this now, is whenever we would have brass come to in-service training and have the time, they would have an important phone call and have to leave the room and they mm-hmm. wouldn't fucking listen. And then it's like, okay, well then what example now are you setting? I'm going down a rabbit hole of brass. Um, I'm not saying this is all brass. I'm saying this is just some brass. Um, but yeah. back to what we were talking about, the frequency of training, the likelihood of an encounter that law enforcement is like traffic stops, high-risk vehicle stops, felony stops, defensive tactics, shooting, de-escalation techniques, verbal judo. These things should be high on the priority list. Why? Just the frequency, just the nature of the job. When you spend four hours on a fucking hazmat class, when it's like, look, if a tanker full of a a fucking ammonium nitrate explodes, I'm probably going to be dead anyways. Like, like, stay stay up wind. You know, I mean, it's important, right? It's important to learn what to do in the situations, who to call, what to look for. I, I get that. I understand it. But when it comes to the core effort of why these police officers are dying on the streets right now, and this, the thing is, it is tragic. Don't get me wrong. Every loss of life is tragic. And this is not to judge any officer that has had, that has paid the ultimate sacrifice, but it's to say at what point in time do we say, Hey, agencies, open your eyes realize what you're putting out there, realize there is, there needs to be a change. And again, there's some agencies out there that are extremely progressive that are doing a phenomenal job of incorporating jujitsu, incorporating fitness and wellness programs, actually giving their guys a, a, a resource for mental health, which we'll talk about here in a second. And there's other agencies that are like, uh, he's fine. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, he doesn't need anything. Hey guys, shoot your 50 rounds, you know, twice a year, you're qualified. Yep. And then people get mad when there's an unjustified use of force or a use of force that is justified but looks completely awful. Yeah. And, and I, I, I think it's huge because when I started, I literally was like, I, got a, I had no medical training. I, I sent myself to my own medical training classes on my own dime, my own um, carving classes on my own dime, paid for all my own ammo, all this stuff. But I knew that I needed it. And for some reason, just, you know, just like you said, you get into a situation and you're like, why doesn't anybody know what to do right now? And then you're calling supervisors and then they don't know what to do. And you're like, well then what's, what do we do? Right. And then, you know, you know, just like you said, sometimes it solves itself out. Sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes it ends badly, you know? Yeah. Sometimes it ends real badly. And that's the thing is, is it's not even about the violence too. You know, like the use of force. It's also about the liability, right? The, the, situation, you know, um, I'm not even talking about Mr. Floyd incident, but you know, just any situation in general where there's civil liability on the police officer to where they didn't do their job. For example, right. The, um, 
the Rashad Brooks incident in Atlanta, mm-hmm. right? Um, Officer yeah. Rolf was doing his job. He was trying yeah. to take an in, he was trying to take an intoxicated individual to jail, and if he were to let him go, and he were to come back get his car, and then kill somebody, like a family of four driving to Disney World early that morning, who's responsible? The police officer responsible for not doing his job. Yep. You know, and so yep. and so I think the whole the whole thing revolves around training and having brass support that training. And now in your agency, did you have good support when you were to say, Hey, look, Hey guys, I think I need to go to this training. Are you guys willing to help me pay for it? Or can I go? Can you guys give me time off? Were they, were they progressive in that, in that area? For officers who didn't look like me. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, for Got me, it. no, I would have never been sent to any training like that. I had to go do all that on my own. Yeah, I had to go do all that on my own. There was training that I asked to go to that um, I was denied, you know, and that's fine. Guys, you know, guys got denied. Sure. But there was training that I asked to go to that other guys didn't ask to go to, and they were sent and I wasn't. So, you know, when it came to training, I knew I was on my own. I had to cover my own ass. So, right. um, I just said, you know what, I, I need to be prepared. I did uh, medical training on my own. Um, I did firearms training on my own. Um, I just did everything on my own because I, one, I, I wanted to survive. So I didn't yeah. tell anyone. I would never tell anyone that I would like you. I would pay my own dime, and I still continue to do that. Um, I would pay on my own dime and go get, train, and I wouldn't tell anyone there I was a cop. I would, you know, that, that I was, you know, from that agency, I would just go, I would do the training and I would come back to work and I never told a soul. I just knew that I would be better prepared than those around me. Did I feel that those around me should be prepared as well? I did because when everyone around you has the same level of training, well, then you're stronger as a unit. Absolutely. But I knew that if the department wasn't going to send me and most of the guys that I was working with could care less about going and getting that kind of training. I said, I'm just going to do it on my own. And that's what I did. And now did your agency. So let's say you were to attend medical training. Um, and then you were like, you know what, I'm going to start carrying a tourniquet on my duty belt. Did your agency have any policies against things such as that? Cause I know, um, I started carrying a tourniquet very early on in my law enforcement career. Cause I knew the importance of it. I had friends in the military, other friends that were way more experienced cops and they were like, dude, you need to carry one on your belt. You need to carry it to where you can access with both hands, et cetera. And so I started carrying it. There, luckily, there wasn't a policy in my agency against it. But I know there are some agencies out there that are like, hey, it's not issued. You can't wear it. Or it's yeah. not. Did your, did your agency, did you have any troubles with that? Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't have anything on your belt unless it was approved by the agency. And they didn't approve anything except what they issued you. Um, in fact. Um, I remember after going to a training where, uh, during the training, uh, the gentleman who did the training, who was super high level guy, great guy, um, tons of accolades. Um, he was a big proponent of putting your handcuffs on the front of your belt. I had my handcuffs on the back of my belt and it was the pop case. Right. Okay. So you had to pop 
pop the case and pull the cuffs out. Yeah. But the international sign to run. <laughs> what's that? I said it's the international sign to run when you hear right, that. Right, right. The international <laughs> sign of time to fight. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, he recommended, this gentleman recommended that you put them on the front of your belt. And he recommended the little loop that goes through them and holds the handcuffs so the handcuffs kind of hang. And mm-hmm. it's almost like a belt keeper is holding yeah. the cuffs to the front, right? Yep. He said in his experience, and he had worked, you know, locking up gang members and doing all this crazy stuff that, you know, we weren't really doing in our town. Um, but he said, if you're arresting people on a regular basis, and I was for DWI and things like that, it's on the front of you. And if you're hands-on, you're controlling the suspect, you just reach down right in front. You're not reaching around the back, popping a case, whatever. So, um, and they, so obviously I had department issued handcuffs. Um, so I just moved them from the back, which was also better for sitting in the patrol car, by the way. And I moved them to the front. And after about a week, I was told that I was not allowed to wear the handcuffs in the front. And I said, why? And my sergeant said it was coming from above him, meaning that either a captain, lieutenant, or chief had said something to him, and he was telling me. So he was just saying, don't kill the messenger. And that sergeant I had was really cool. And I said, you know, Sarge, I, I did some training, and... This is like this is not a fashion thing. This is a safety thing right. for police officers, and I can back it up with the training I've I've experienced. And he's like, "Yeah, it's not really cared about here. You really just got to put those cuffs back in the case on the back of your body." And and I'm like, "Well, you know, from a safety standpoint, you guys are about CYA, right? Wouldn't you want us to be safer?" He's like, listen, this is kind of like above my pay grade. Can you just put your cuffs back on your belt in the back and just, uh, yeah. And so, of course, no, me being me, I knew I couldn't ruffle any feathers. Right. So I was like, okay, you got it. Got yeah, it see, and that's, and that's a very common, I've experienced the same thing. Um, you know, and, there, and this is kind of one thing where I am at, nece- is what I consider a necessary gear and necessary placement, right? We have to make sure the officer is comfortable because why the officer is the pilot of the airplane the officer decides the safety of everyone on that plane everyone in the community so if handcuff placement is going to make the difference in that then i think we need to allow handcuff place and i think i think now with more progressive brass and brass that actually has experience right i'm I'm not talking about brass that work some specialized unit and then they got their way to chief and they, and they kind of forgot what it's like to put on a uniform and what it's like to do these things. And I mean, just like you said, I think that there should be a standard, right? There should be some type of uniform policy. Absolutely. But when it comes to necessary items or necessary placement of gear, there should really be no rebuttal. Cause now you're, it, it, it compromises the number one thing they teach and that's officer safety because if the officer's yeah. not comfortable, you're compromising the safety of, of that officer. Cause you right now know that now I have to reach back behind me to un, undo a flap that I can't see. Yeah. Especially, right. You know, especially in dark. Cause again, you get a tussle on the ground, your fucking duty belt shifting all over the place. You don't know. Right. Oh now, yeah. Right. And so you go to reach for this latch you, and you can't find it. But if it was, yeah if it was right in front of you and it's, it's again, it's a, it's a simple context like that. And just like you said with the whole tourniquet thing, I mean, my old agency, we didn't implement tourniquets until 2018. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Right. And so what I did when I got promoted to Sergeant 
um, training sergeant, I basically put together a proposal that was, I, I, I kind of call my pride and joy as my first child. Um, and I was able to be like, Hey, these, this is the data. This is, this is the cost. It costs nothing yeah. compared to what you guys are spending on other shit that fucking cops don't do. That's, that's, right. that's a whole other topic. They spend all kinds of money and you're like, what? <laughs> like this, For what? Right. Right. This, right. this money you bought these segways with or whatever the hell people are buying these days, right? These, these, these friggin' mall cop things you could have paid for, um, uh, one hour of jujitsu training every week for the entire agency. And we yep. talk about, we, and then, we, and then that goes back to the frequency of calls. What's most important. What are they getting into? What are use of force complaints looking like? Right. And so that was, that was, that's extremely frustrating. And then towards the end of your career, towards the end of your 13 year career, what did you see that was good? And what did you see that was bad as you were leaving? Oh, loaded question. What did, I, what did I see that was good? Um, Don't think too hard. <laughs> I, I, it's hard. It's hard yeah, to think of what, was, what, what was good. Um, I saw the agency expanding training a little bit, doing some more dynamic training around um, motor vehicles and cars good. and things like that. So they were getting into that. Some younger officers were now getting a little bit of seniority and I think they were able to put their input in and we were able to do some more dynamic training. So that was, that I think was good. Um, what was bad? There was so much that was wrong that I, you know, we'd be on here all night. Yeah. Um, Not enough data on my computer. Yeah. I mean, we would be here, we'd be all night. I mean, yeah. I mean, wrong with things on the job, wrong with things off the job. Um, you know, it just, it, it was, it was bad. There were some things that were rampant um, that if the people of the town I worked in knew about, they would probably lose their minds. Um, and it was common, you know, it was just common. Um, I think, you know, you probably, you know, heard on Handy's podcast, I'm writing a book. I did and hear that. in the book, it, you know, is going to be detailed of like the officers involved in some of these things and what was actually going down. And it was, it was pure madness. It was absolute madness. So, um, you know, a lot of people ask me when they hear my story, they're like, were all the cops like that? And the answer is no. There were a lot of great guys that I worked with and they're all happy right now because their name is not going to be in the book, right? Because they're like, you know, they were good guys. They were straight laced guys and whatever. So they're all happy right now. You know, some of them have texted me. They're like, I'm not going to be in the book. Am I? Am I going to be in the book? Page and 74, I'm like, I'm bitch. <laughs> <laughs> so, but other guys, listen, I mean, you know, you don't, you, you can't put bury bodies, have someone watching you bury the body, and then hope that everything's going to be fine when you go and do something to that person who watched you bury the bodies. Like, you can't do that. I mean, like, li you know, listen, a lot of these people have bodies in their closets. And, you know, to me, that's a lot of what the public is mad about. The public is upset about some of the 
what the bad cops do and the bad cops get away with. The reality I is agree. They work with more good cops than bad cops. And the reality is no one hated the bad cops and no one looked down at what those, those cops did that were doing the wrong things. No one looked down on that more than the good crew of cops. And I worked with a lot of great guys that um, they took the job serious and, you know, they respected the job and they respected their role. Um, I worked with quite a few that didn't. And the stories in the book are evidence of that. So I'm looking um, forward to it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's going to be an eye opener for, when's it going to be released? Do you have a, do you have a potential release date? It's going to be next year. We're just kind of going back and forth with certain, some of the finer points of the book. Um, but probably middle to end of next year. Awesome guys. Hey guys, so be on the lookout for Suresh's book. I'm, I'm definitely, I'm definitely going to grab a copy. Dude, I, I cannot wait. I love a good law enforcement read. Um, especially just that, just from that raw perspective and, and, you know, Suresh really didn't go into detail really a lot about his story, his upbringing. Um, it is on Andy's podcast. I believe you guys kind of hit on that pretty hard there. Yeah. Um, and it's, and I definitely recommend listening to that episode. Um, it's very eye opening, and and it's just a different perspective, right? Um, you know, I don't know what it's like to be a black police officer. I have no clue. I will never know. You know, and I think that, especially just even with his upbringing, it's extremely important. So, be on the lookout for his book dropping sometime next year. But kind of, t- kind of to that point, talking about the kind of that accountability aspect of law enforcement. I think that it could be better, but I also think people need to understand the accountability and where it comes from. For example, the George Floyd body cam footage that was not released. I think people need to understand that footage was leaked, which means that it was still being held by someone who is an American Mm -hmm. and letting that lack of information destroy America. And I think that people need to understand it's cops jobs as when it comes to the whole justice system is, is the law enforcement side, the laws that are not made by cops. And I think people understand cops don't make laws. Yes. We have discretion, right? Cops have discretion. They have the ability to determine, you know, kind of in a situation, but that's, but that's not lawmaking. Um, And so accountability wise, what do you think could be done to hold those bad cops because trust me, I am all about that life. I am all about saying, this is a shitty cop. Yeah. How do we, how do we hold him accountable for his actions or how do we make sure he doesn't be a cop anymore? How do you think that can happen? Like, what are your, what's your theory on that? Severe and shocking punishment, severe and shocking consequences. I I think, I think the same goes with, most things you look at. I mean, people like we've all met people with children who misbehave, right? And you look at them and you're like, wait a second, how, like, how are you a parent right now with this child acting like this? Well, that is a result of the child's action, no consequence or a threatened consequence and nothing happens. So the action happens again and the action and the behavior just gets worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, to me, you have a police officer that you find is, you know, uh, stealing money or, you know, involved with drugs or driving drunk, 
Um, a lot of, you're going to hear a lot of this in the book. Um, these are actions that need to be dealt with in such a shocking and alarming manner that it makes other officers look and say, yeah, no, right. no, no, I, I'm, I, I, I'm I, not doing that. I'm I not agree. even going to go near that. I'm not getting involved with it. Now that is for, that is for the extreme situations, right? Where I think you have to be careful is where you have an officer who is trying to do their job to the best of their training and in doing their job to the best of their training, doing what they know, end up hurting a suspect, shooting a suspect, maybe killing a suspect. And every other officer is looking at what that officer did and is kind of like, I probably would have done the same thing. You know, sure. And then they see that officer get charged with like murder and the department like drops a hammer on them because it's a political thing. And the town council and the mayor and the city council, and they got to charge this cop. Now that is really hurting the psyche of all those other cops there that are good cops. And this this guy who's going through this, he, too, was a good cop. He just acted on his training. He, he, he did what he thought was right. What's yeah. that? So, yeah. so uh, right. I mean, he made a mistake, and and uh, and you know, I think people too, you know, the the thought of what is a cop, right? Where does a cop come from? Well, cops are people. They come from society, like you and I. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not a cop farm. It's like I kind of told Andy, like there's no there's no place where they're growing troopers in one area and then they're growing deputies in the other. It it is we are people of society. Cops are humans. They make mistakes. And for yeah. Say cops need to be held to a higher standard. I agree. I agree a hundred percent. They should yeah. be held to a higher oh, standard. Yeah. But you know who else should be held to a higher standard? The people making decisions of the training, people making decisions of the laws, people making these decisions yeah. where people getting away with shit they shouldn't be getting away with. And this is way above the pay grade of your typical road cop, right? But yeah. Like you said, it all trickles down and guess who gets shit on? Right. And so yeah. it's you know, you know, it's the guys at the bottom. And I think I think you made some really good points about the punishments. I think that, you know, don't get me wrong. If a cop gets complained on, right, let's, let's do an investigation, right? We have to have due process. We we have to be fair. Plus two, think about the purpose of a cop's job is to enforce the law and take bad people to jail. Well, of course, bad people sometimes don't want to go to jail. So they're going to scream excessive force. They're going to scream, you know, police brutality and whatever else. But, you know, just like everybody said, oh, well, like Officer Rolf had multiple complaints. Most good cops have complaints on their records somewhere. Because they're out there working. Because they're exactly right. So, so when uneducated politicians or uneducated people or misinformed people say, well, he had five complaints on his record. He should have been gone. Well, did you look at the complaints? Did you see what they were for? Have you seen his track record? Have you seen so 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 just to base off how many complaints an officer has is really irrelevant in the case to what kind of officer they are and what kind of person they are. Because again, there are bad cops, like there's bad bank tellers, there's bad veterinarians, there's bad everything. Mm-hmm. And again, people are gonna slip through the cracks, but just like you said, how do we deal with that and how do we show the public that when a when a bad cop does something bad, it is met with it is met with justice, and it is met with yes. justice quickly. 
And I think that too, I say quickly, but fairly, right? We got to make sure that we follow the legal process and make sure everybody has a right to a fair trial because that's what I think in the current state um, after Mr. Floyd, everybody wanted that emotional justice, right? They wanted that right now. And that is kind of, I want to ask you this question. How did you feel? Um, and again, just for the record, me and Suresh, what happened to Mr. Floyd? 100% unacceptable. Oh, 1,000%. 100%. 1,000%. There is absolutely no excuse for that happening. Um, we just, I just want to go ahead and make that clear for the record. But as a, as, as a black man and a black police officer, a former black police officer, how did that make you feel when you saw that video, when you saw a situation for the first time? Um, you know, it, it was troubling. I, this may come off a little cold and a little calloused. Um, and people have shared their disdain with me about this and my feelings here. Sure. There are things that as a man of color in this country that is no longer wearing a uniform there are cases that I found way more disturbing than the George Floyd case. Um, And those are the cases that worry me. The cases of men of color who were not fighting the police in any capacity, who were not resisting arrest in any capacity, that get shot and or killed and those are the things that i'm like okay like i see someone actively resisting arrest in handcuffs following committing a crime and something bad happens to them of course you say this is terrible right because someone lost their life over a petty like crime like what was he a forgery you know you know right so you never want to see that for anyone. You don't want to see that for a white guy, black guy, anyone. Right. Oh, yeah. But when you see it happen subsequent the commission of a crime, I always go back to why, did, why was he doing this stupid crime? Like there are so many other options. Why did he do this? And it, his actions ultimately led to his, his death. And now when the body cam footage comes out, you really see what happened where he was fighting, kicking to get out of the car and then begging the police officers to lay him down on the ground. And you're like, holy crap, like what, why didn't we, any, anyone see this, right? And as someone who has dealt with children, children in my family and children outside, we all know that sometimes when you have an out of control child throwing a temper tantrum of some kind and you're bigger than that child, The only thing you can do is hold them down. You hold them down. You hold them down until they calm down, right? We've we've had to do it to children, right? I see things that have happened in this country to people of color that weren't resisting arrest, that didn't just commit crime, and things happened to them when dealing with the police. That's what scares me because I could see myself in that situation. Right. And I could say, I could see that happening to me. When someone says, can you see yourself, see what happened to George Floyd happening to you? I say no, because one, I don't commit crime. I don't break the law. Two, 
if I did commit a crime, if I did break the law, I sure as hell am not going to be fighting with the police when they come to arrest me. All right? Correct. I'm not going to be throwing a tantrum once handcuffed. I'm not going to be kicking and screaming in a police car. I'm not going to be telling them to put me down on the ground because I'm having a panic attack. I'm going to say, hey, listen, I don't have a job. I need money. I'm committing some crime to put some food on the table. You caught me. All right, fine. Let's go. Yeah. Mr. Floyd had been arrested many times before. Correct. This was not his first rodeo. No. So he knew the deal. This was not something new for him, right? So then what did he meet? You have that disaster of a situation now being met with an officer who apparently knew him and they had some history, Officer Chauvin okay. and Mr. Floyd apparently worked at the at same bar? night bar or nightclub. Bar club. nightclub as a bouncer. They had some kind of con contentious uh, relationship there. So maybe there was some history there. And you have a guy that, for what I see, is just a not just a poorly trained, but just a bad guy. Yeah. Just a bad dude. Yeah. You have your knee on the neck of a man who's saying, I can't breathe, and is slowly losing his life beneath your knee. And, you don't, and people are around you yelling and screaming, hey, like he's not breathing, he's not moving. And you still hold that position? To me, that's just pure evil. That is yeah, just no, pure and evil. And I think, too, immediately the country was divided by race, immediately. And I don't think, my personal opinion, I don't think that it had anything to do with race. It was bad cop. Bad I, think cop. It, I, I, I think it was bad cop. I don't think it had anything to do with the color of Mr. Floyd. I think that, you know, too, you know, just, you know, just like you said, as someone who's been practicing jujitsu for, you know, a little over three years and who's, you know, has law enforcement experience, knee on belly, knee on chest position in jujitsu is extremely uncomfortable, especially if you know what the hell you're doing. Extremely. Yeah. I mean, you can have guys that weigh 140 pounds and they feel like they weigh 250. Yes, I know it. Yeah, yeah. Very familiar. And to have, your weight, even if even if it's not all of your weight, even if it's forty percent of your weight on someone's neck, is completely unacceptable for an extended period of time of eight minutes. And I understand, from my understanding, I believe that that was that particular movement was allowed in his policy. Now, time length, I don't think. Yeah. It, it may be something along the lines of a reasonable amount of time or until yeah. the suspect is, but he was handcuffed. He was, I mean, he was fucking handcuffed. Like, I, I don't, yeah. I don't know what else. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really know. What to do I mean, yes, he had fentanyl in his system that definitely contributed to his respiratory depression. Sure. Right. And yeah. so, and so of course he's not going to have the ability to breathe because one, he's intoxicated Two, He's in a position that's not ideal. Um, and, and so it was just a bad situation altogether. It was just a bad situation altogether. But for the country to be torn apart into this racial divide between police and the public, and I and I really hate that it's a us versus them mentality when it's yeah. really it really shouldn't be. Um, you know, I I I still feel like in my in my understanding, looking at the data, looking at 
my experience, I still feel like there wasn't really like, I, I guess there was a point in time and I, I may be too young to understand this, but there was probably a point in time where I feel like race race obviously is always going to play a factor when it comes to the data, right? Like we have to, yeah. we have to break it down like that to find problems. But when people say there's a race problem with cops and black people, I don't see it anymore. And I, and, and like the data shows probably in the past, at least 10 years of data that I've, that I've, I've actually dove into in research. There really isn't. Um, of course there are horrific incidences that do occur that spark this, right? Like a uh, Mr. Floyd, Richard Brooks, um, Jacob Blake situation. And, and that's just what I think. I could be wrong. I could be wrong, but from your experience, I actually have a question here. How much of the racial tension within law enforcement actually exist versus what, what people think is happening in your opinion? Um, I think that the, if there is any sort of, the level of racism in police work is no different than it was 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, you had, of course, certain cops, a very small percentage, but a small percentage, nevertheless, of white cops that don't like black people. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And 20 years later, here in 2020, you still have that same percentage. Okay. Is that ever going to go away? I'm going to say no, because we're human beings and human beings by nature are always going to have bias against something. I know some white cops that hate female cops, no matter their skin color. They can't stand female cops. They don't like working with female cops. They say, I don't want to be on the same squad as a female cop. I don't want to work with female cops. Sure. Okay. For I know guys whatever like that reason. Too. Yeah. Yeah. I know guys like that they, too. That's, that's their stance. Okay. Sure. I understand. I sympathize with some of their reasoning and some of their reasoning I think is ungrounded, but whatever. Now, I know that there's certain cops out there, no one can deny it, that for whatever reason, their upbringing, their parents, where they were raised, a traumatic incident as a child, they don't like people of color, or they believe people of color have this predisposition to crime or what have you, sure. because of what the news and the media puts out there, okay? Which is, we can go down that rabbit hole. The media is great about every night on the news showing you every crime in the city Black man wanted, wanted, black man, 5'10 to 6'10, uh, 140 to 220 pounds. Ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Hitting you with it, throwing the, the police sketch and whatever. Right. So every night they're just telling you about all these black people committing these horrible crimes, right? And then you have these white people who live like in these areas that don't have black people and they're just building this mindset that, man, black men are like criminals, Right. They're like yeah. criminals. They're just like committing all these horrible crimes in the city. Like if you look at like New Jersey, in the suburbs of New Jersey, you see the New York City news, right? You're seeing the news of New York City. That's the nearest city, right? So you're seeing all these crazy crimes committed by black men. It's on the news, their police sketch every night. So if you're some white kid in New Jersey growing up and you just see that every night on the news and your parents are talking about it, 
And then 15 years later, you become a cop and you go and you're in this town and you see these black guys rolling through and they don't look like they're from this town. And you're like, wow, you're going to have that predisposed thinking that these guys are definitely up to no good. and They're probably doing some crap. It's been ingrained in you since you were a child. You're right. watching the media. You're watching the news. Now, that same media, that same media now is trying to push the narrative of there's this major race thing. I don't think it's any different. I mean, you look back, obviously, look at Rodney King. Look at uh, Amadou Diallo. You look at all these incidents. They were incidents, right, involving people of color and white police officers. Now in the day of social media, in the day of cell phones, in the day of, you know, the internet, now those incidents are able to go viral at an alarming, alarmingly fast rate. Yes. And the media can get to hop up. Now, the reality is 20 years ago, no one, nobody, almost nobody knows the name Rayshard Brooks. Almost nobody knows the name uh, George Floyd. It was just a black guy that got arrested that ended up dying. Yeah. Right? Yeah, you're right. Michael Brown. Just another black guy that decided to get into a tussle with the cops and got shot. It was happening. It was yeah. happening every single day. But we didn't have the cell phones. We didn't have the social media. And the news media back then actually just reported what happened. They didn't report what happened with a nice cushion of their opinion sure, around yeah. it. Yeah, right? And they the just said, footage. Yeah. They said, this is what happened. This town, this time, this date, boom. Now it's opinion. The news is spewing their opinion. So now the same media that created the monster is now saying, hey, wait a second. Wait a second. People are... People are being biased against the monster. Well, you created that monster, right? So now you're being biased. Now people are, and you're, now you're pointing the finger at white people. You're pointing the finger at white cops. You're pointing the finger at all this. This has been happening. Not that I think it's okay. Obviously, it's not okay. Right. You hear what happened to some of these, some of these men, and you got you to dig deep to find these stories. A couple of the stories made it to the top. The Amadou Diallo story. The um you know obviously the rodney king story and there was a couple other things being in the new york city area you heard these stories but they never made national news right you they never made national news so you look at what's happening now and it's just a it's just a product of technology and people are like thinking it's happening more now it's not happening more now it's happening at the same degree that it's always been happening it's just more exposed it's just more exposed. It's just more exposed. And that's where I think, too, the accountability not only of police officers but of the media because you think about the manipulation of a video. Um, we, you know, we try to do it on police posts where we try to find the entire video. And, of course, people's, you know, people's attention spans are about as much as a fucking goldfish these days. But Less. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> – so it's like, I mean, people will blast us on our post. Well, you missed this point and this point and this point. I'm like, well, first off, I can only put so many characters in a word and I only try to take out certain points that I think pertain to the situation. But we try to give the full story. We try to give background information. We try to give an actual vetted news source to where 
it's without all the yellow journalism. It's without all of the just the filth and garbage they do, the headline garbage. And of course, it's attention getting because it's profitable, right? It's, it, it's, that's all it is. Um, but the accountability of the media, too, I think right now is the reason why this country is in the way. Because, you know, again, I have, I have many friends of color. I have, I have a lot of black friends and they're not cops. So I talk to them and we're, is the thing is we are extremely open about conversations, like extremely open because that's the only way to make progress, right? That's the only way to say, I don't understand. Tell me. And of course, just like I tell people like, if you don't understand law enforcement, cause this is, you know, cause right now law enforcement's, you know, a hot topic. If you don't understand it, then don't assume you know, because you probably don't. If you've never been on a traffic stop, you don't know what it's like to be a cop. Like, and yeah. I'm not talking about a ride along. I'm talking like yeah. if you've never gotten out if you, and you never crossed that dead zone and you never asked somebody to roll down the window and you never done this and that, it's very hard to say, you know, I understand, right? And it's just like, same thing in the military. Guys, like, guys who, guys who are Navy SEAL, like, I don't know what it's like to go through BUDS training. I have no idea. Mm-hmm. I went through a officer survival water class but that doesn't mean i went through buds like right you know it's just it's just not the comparison so do you think let me just is there a conversation that we are not having between law enforcement and the media and i i know the answer is yes but i'm saying what do you think is that question or what do you think that bridge, what do you think that gap is and how do we fill that gap and how do we fix that? I think that there should be laws around how and when and what the media is allowed to disseminate when it okay. comes to certain police incidents. However, the reality is people are the media themselves these days. You know, so the tide has turned, right? So back in the day, the news cameras were the first cameras on scene. Right, yeah. Now, this is the first camera on scene, (laughs) right? Back in the day, it was the cops. Then it shifted a little bit. Then it was the cops that had the body camera on. Now, it's the people the cops are dealing with and everyone watching that has a body camera too in this, in their hand. Exactly. So the tide has turned. Tables have shifted. So now you have a whole different dynamic. The news is being circumvented by a 14 year old videotaping a traffic stop. The, the world, our country is being driven by a $800 phone. Right. And that is, and that is, and that's, and that's the thing is, is, just like you said, the news is last. The news is last, last to the scene. You yeah. have these that are usually first, right? Then the cops, yeah. then the news. Because if you really think about it, they always show cell phone footage, right? Always. They never show. They never show. And again, that cell phone footage can come from many different sources. Cell phone footage could be altered in so many ways. And this is why, I mean – Suresh and I both preaches and he preaches this on his YouTube channel is, is we have to really take a dive into each situation and really understand just like, 
even though the situation looks completely terrible, like the George Floyd situation, the Rashard Brooks situation, the Jacob Blake situation, those situations look terrible when you see the first 10 seconds of the news post. They all look extremely bad. But you look at the Rashad Brooks situation. You look at the Jacob Blake situation. You look at those videos in entirety justified. George Floyd situation, different case. Yeah, different case. Different totally case. different case. But yeah. you look at the Rashad Brooks, you look at the Jacob Blake situation, 100% justified. And what really blows my mind, Suresh, is that uh, somebody actually posted this about, about Jacob Blake. They sent it to me. His GoFundMe, I think I – don't freaking quote me on this, but – Raised somewhere like two million dollars, and then there was a over. Cop. Yeah, is it is it is, is it over two million? I think it was over. Yeah, and then there was a cop that was shot uh, in the line of duty, and I don't think he'll be able, I don't think he'll be able to return to work, and got like fifteen grand. Right? Yeah. like it's it's just it's just the ass backwards, and I and it's because of that first tense. How dare you shoot a man in the back seven times? How dare you when? We know, we both know, that shot placement is 100% irrelevant. Yeah. In a justified shooting. Yeah. It is 100%. It does not matter. Shoot him in the big toe, shoot him in the back, shoot him anywhere. It does not matter. If it's a justified shooting, it is, it is justified. And so with, with everything that we know here, how do we feel like, I, I personally feel like, and I don't know if I'm biased because of, police post in my background, but I feel like a lot of these incidences that we do see on the media, these ones that are, are horrific incidences could be possibly, I'm not going to say non-existent because that's impossible, but lower percentage, maybe because of training. Mm -hmm. I think that a lot of these issues, and I was actually, I actually talked to Henry Gracie yesterday on the phone for about an hour. Um, He's got some pretty cool things coming uh, when it comes when it comes to jujitsu and law enforcement. But do you believe that training could have, I don't know, resolved these incidences? Like, do you think they would have been non-existent if? And I'm not talking about like he's a bad cop, he's a good cop. I'm talking about just from a straight up straight up training standpoint. Do you believe that it could have solved, not solved, but it could have not been such a huge incident. Yeah. Uh, when you look at Rayshard Brooks, um, uh, when you look at the, uh, the other gentleman, uh, we are just talking about Jacob, Blake. Uh, Jacob Blake. Yeah. Um, and, uh, many others. Um, I, I wrote a blog that was just recently published. Um, could jujitsu save police work as we know it and possibly save the country. And, uh, I got a lot of response to that because people were like that's a pretty brazen statement and i said well let me let me break it down sure jujitsu as you know is not just what you're able to do with your body but also your ability to reason and your ability to the biggest thing that i think jujitsu trains you in is to remain calm and not overreact because on the mat, if you overreact with the wrong person, you are done. You die. You are done. You are going to be, for those of you who don't know, in jujitsu, 
when you are in a compromised pain compliance position that your opponent gets you into, you have to do what's called tap, which is either you tap, you tap on their shoulder or you tap on somewhere on their body. Let them know that you give up, you give in. Yeah. Verbal tap. Yeah. uh, yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, You could say it verbally too. Of course. Sure. So do both. But (laughs) the, the premise of that is like chess where you got to now take the time to think of every position you're in and not overreact because if you overreact, you are done. Okay. Sure. So not only from the physical standpoint of looking at what happened with like the two officers with Rayshard Brooks, I would bet a lot of money. I would be willing to bet quite a bit of money that if those two officers were six-month white belts, that incident would not have happened. Sure, no, and I agree. And I, and I think, too, that, um, you know, the GST system and there, you know, again, there are other great companies and other great pages to follow, like Jiu-Jitsu 5.0 and Invictus, um, you know, that specialize in Jiu-Jitsu for law enforcement, right? So, you know, me and Andy went, down this rabbit hole pretty deep and and i 100 percent agree with you suresh i think people who have never trained jujitsu you know again you don't have to 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 train jujitsu for 10 years to be no. effective no. um you know again i've been training jujitsu for about f- a little over three years now and i i've trained two to three days a week i study one hour a day um and i can tell you right now the confidence boost it is is not only going again it's not just about ability just like kind of what Suresh said like I I personally feel like being comfortable and you know in an uncomfortable position your body awareness but also your level of confidence because you know you're not going to you're going to be less emotional and we know that when emotion gets involved into a use of force situation it doesn't look good it, it, it looks bad and, and it's, and it's very obvious, right? It's very, people get ticked off. But again, if you, if you know the guy standing in front of you, you have five options to take him down and, and subdue him, arm drag, ankle sweep, whatever, like you're not worried about what he's going to do. You already know what you're going to do. And so having that mindset of I already have an option a, and this is actually, so my professor, really explained it in a really, a really, a really great way that I've, I've kind of tell, uh, told other people. Now, my professor is a little bit older than me. He started jiu-jitsu when he was 12 years old and he's, he's fought MMA. He's, I mean, he, he's a phenomenal instructor, but he, he said in every position, you want to have multiple options, but every option should be well-trained that it's option A. So mm-hmm. if option A doesn't work, you have option A. You That's have option great. A, you have option A. And so you're just that good. Now, again, he's been training jiu-jitsu for 20-something years. Yeah. And is, and is a phenomenal instructor. But at the same time, I only have three years on. And I, I feel very confident. Just like you said, I think if every cop was at a blue belt capacity, perfect world, you would see yeah. – the media wouldn't have any stories to run. No, they would not. They, they would not. They would be, they would, because again, and I, and, and this is a direct quote from Henner. You want the 
and again, Henner's never been a police officer and he stated that multiple times, but he's, his whole family is so involved in violence and control that he can, he can definitely speak on that. And for him to say something like you want the incidences where it looks boring, where it's just nothing's happening. And you're like, this guy just ended up in handcuffs. That's the kind of cop you want to be. You don't want to make the news. If you do make the news, it's because you saved a family of six from a burning building or from a car accident that was on fire. Absolutely. Go ahead, get your badge, do your shit, whatever, get your, get your medal. Great. But when it comes to what the frequency of calls that officers face, jujitsu, I believe Suresh will change law enforcement. hundred percent. No, I don't think anyone can deny that. I don't think anyone can deny that. People who don't know, who don't train, can can say that you and I are both crazy, okay? But I'll say this. Come up with a better option. And let me know. And and let us know. Come up with a better option. Because it's real easy to say, that's crazy, that's not going to work. That's easy. What's hard is to put in the work, do the work, and show people, listen, this can work. I have friends on the job that have used jujitsu on the job to oh, subdue yeah. subjects that who knows how it would have went otherwise. But I got to tell you, when you look at the video, you're like, looks like that cop's just like laying on that guy. Yeah. Just like Ruben Alvarez. Like, like yeah, Ruben. Yeah. You yeah, know, so Ruben Ruben's a that. very good friend of mine. Yeah. And you're like, what is it? People don't know what he was doing there was classic jujitsu where he white just made shit. right like white belt stuff yeah. white belt stuff it's but funny it i just ran a co- i just ran a contest after i posted that video of the tulsa oklahoma officers and okay. i said tag tag someone tag a friend and i'm gonna pay whoever wins and the team picked this guy and i guess he tagged a female officer he works with um and I just spoke to the owner of the school and I paid for one month of jujitsu for both that guy who won and the person, the girl he tagged as a awesome. female officer he worked with. That's and awesome. he was so blown away. And I spoke to the owner of the school and the people who won were blown away, but the owner of the school was like, uh, or the guy who was running the school um, was like, you know, this is like wild that you did this and you're like paying for this. I said, I'm not paying for this out of two, two, one B I'm paying Suresh's wallet opened up for this. Yeah. And I said, this is how important I feel it is. Now, a lot of people will get behind something and they'll say something's important and they'll say, Oh, I really mean this. And I really support this. But how many people will open up their own wallet in order to, and now now that means, up. Oh, you, can't, you can't buy that thing on Amazon that you wanted and you can't right. go out to that dinner. You can't do this. No, no. I paid for two human beings, two police officers to go get jujitsu training that will hopefully, and I'm, I'm hoping they will continue. They both seem like they will. Sure. That will hopefully able one day enable them to not take the life, not have to take the life of somebody because they will have the physical and mental capacity to subdue that person easily and both go home safe they go home safe the subject goes to jail safe whatever now i'm putting my money where my mouth is now let's see if some police agencies will do the same because if you say you really care about your officers and you really care you really care about cya 
let's see if you step up and do the right thing because more firearms training, when to shoot, not to shoot, all that stuff is great, but you're still talking about shooting. And we know 13 years, the first thing that happens when I'm dealing with the subject, guess what? Is these touch them. Correct. It's the first thing. Correct. It's always the first thing. And to me, if you can train someone with most of the actions that we see happening are born from fear. Fear is a result of lack of knowledge. You don't have the knowledge of what to do, so you act in fear. 100%. Fear is born from a lack of knowledge. If you give someone that capacity to learn and you give them that knowledge base, their level of fear keeps going down, keeps going down. Right now, my level of fear when I go onto the map is up here. Now, as time goes on, my level of fear when I get onto the map, when I see a blue belt, when I see a purple belt, when I see a brown belt, will slowly get lower and lower and lower. Because why? My knowledge has grown. Right. Now my knowledge has grown, and that is the same thing we need to do for police officers. We need to enable them and empower them with this knowledge of this asset, this tool that gives them the knowledge and confidence to know in this situation, like you said, well, here's option A, and if that doesn't go, I'm going to go with option A again. And that that doesn't work, I'm going to go with option A. And it's to know all of that dynamically in that situation is what's going to prevent an officer and this is huge for female officers. I tell female officers, yes. you're crazy if you yes. don't learn jujitsu because I've been on the mat 6'2", 215, with a female half my size that has gotten me into an arm bar and I'm tapping. So what does that tell you about the power of this? And speaking of, I got, I got to get to class <laughs> in a couple of minutes. Um, but um, so – yeah, I you know, uh, Professor hates when people are late. Absolutely. Uh, so, um, Did Tom DeBlas? So, yeah. Tom DeBlas? Is Tom DeBlas uh, your professor? No, 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 no. I went to uh, Ricardo Almeida. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. Who, who obviously Tom got his belt from. Sure, sure, yeah. yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. No, um, so, so it's actually, you know, because I know you got to run here, but I want to kind of hit on what you just said. So something that I always say all the time is, Skill and knowledge equals confidence equals success. That's basically what you said. And when I say confidence, I'm not talking about the lack of confidence because there is a video that we posted of an officer in North Carolina. I don't know if you saw it, but it's about 11-minute video. This officer was the only officer uh, working at the time. He got into a physical altercation with someone he was trying to arrest. Yeah. Lost his radio, lost his gun uh, in the fight, and then he stayed in the fight. And – I, I applaud him for the mindset of not giving up, not surrendering, but that yeah. idea of, of not having that foundation of skill and knowledge gave him that false sense of confidence and, and not so many words to, you know, to really not saying to really talk shit, but at the same time, it's like that officer got lucky, lucky, very lucky. And we should not, we should not as a society, as a training community, sure. Luck has a, place in a critical incident but it's a very small very minute percentage we need to make sure that we cover the rest of that percentage with actual skill actual knowledge and actual confidence because that's what's going to lead us to success and i still feel like for me 
jujitsu is obviously a, a never ending journey. Um, and I, I train as much as I can. I study as much as I can because it's probably one of the most valuable tools I will carry, uh, more than a gun. Uh, yep. you know, hands down from my, also from my own mental capacity. So let me ask you this last question. What is one piece of gear besides jujitsu or one tool that you do not leave home without? When I was an officer or now today? Both, both. Um, you know, I never not have like a Leatherman tool on me and I okay. never not, okay. I never not have a flashlight on me. Um, uh, to me, those are two things that you should always have on you, in your vehicle. You, you know, no, obviously a Leatherman has some mini weapons on it, obviously, you know, if, you know, whatever, but a Leatherman is legal to carry. It has pliers, it has screwdrivers, whatever. You could carry it just yeah. fine, um, depending on the state you live in. Um, I knew cops that didn't carry off duty and it kind of blew my mind that they didn't. I mean, of course, if you're going out drinking and things like that, sure. of course. Um, but I knew cops that just in general didn't carry off duty and we were allowed to carry off duty. Um, and that always blew my mind because you know what, uh, you're a cop, you know, all the way around. And if you know, you're off duty and you see someone like robbing a bank or, you know, trying to kidnap a child, God, you got to jump into action. Sure. So um, I think that that was something that that always bothered me. Um, but I look at states now where I go, I travel, I train, I have lots of friends across the country. And the states where you're allowed to conceal carry, most of the people in my circle, they concealed carry. They carry a weapon on them because uh, they know. Um, I have been going back and forth to a concealed carry state and um, when I'm there, it gives me confidence to know that the people I'm with, um, and when I'm there full time, I will definitely be carrying a, a concealed weapon as well. I know I will be because to me, that is the one thing. Is it the, is it the primary? No, it's not the primary. It's definitely not the primary, but it's something that I'd have on you. But for the average person, um, I would say, Carry some sort of multi-tool on you. It's easy to carry. You carry it on your belt. You carry it in your pocket um, and carry a, a light. It's always, uh, you know, you ne people say, oh, well, you know, what do you carry a light during the day? You never know where you're going to end up. Exactly. You never know. You could end up in a ditch, in a trunk. You never know. <laughs> and uh, those well, are the things too. I – You think about that? a flashlight. I said, you know, you think about a flashlight. It's a great self-defense tool. I mean, you get a thousand lumens in somebody's eyes. Oh, yeah. They're not seeing yeah. shit for a while. You know, we just uh, we, we just came out with this light. It's a okay. thousand lumen light. And I got to tell you the front of it, man, you, you, you hit someone in the face with this thing. Oh, yeah, they're going to know you it. Are, you yeah, are going to yeah. be, you know, they're going to be in a world of hurt. So is that um, on your I website? Think, is that on your website? What? That light? Yeah. Yeah. Is, yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it is. So um, a thousand lumens. It has this toggle on it where, you know, it, it switches to strobe. And um, it, it, like to me, these are the little things that people, I mean, you know, you know how many people I get in their car. And when I'm in their car, I'm looking around, I'm like, you have a first aid kit? And they're like, no. I'm like, you have kids, man. You have kids. No turn And you don't have a first aid yeah. kit in your car? Like, you don't have a flashlight in your car? What kind of man are you? You don't have a, you don't have a, like, a, a, you don't have a multi-tool? You don't have a Swiss Army knife in your straight car? Straight to assaulting manhood. Oh, straight, yeah, I love straight it. manhood. Like, like, be a man. Have some Come stuff on, man. to protect your family, man. Have some shit in your car, dude. Like, dude, that's, that's one thing, too. 
tourniquets, medical gear, fire extinguishers. Yeah. Um, guys, have that. This thing is, it's not expensive. It's really, it's really in the big skim. You know, a Leatherman tool. You can get them at Costco for freaking nothing. Yeah. Amazon for nothing. Flashlights, really not. Ex- Surefire. Go to freaking Suresh's website. Get one of his. I mean, guys, it's not. It's not that hard to be prepared. Right. Yeah. Like take, take a little time again, my 50, 30, 20 breakdown. And I'll go over that in a later podcast, but it, it's really not that hard to be prepared, but I know Suresh has got to go hit the mats. And I, the last thing I want to do is stop a man from training. Um, Suresh, thank you so much for being on the show, man. If, if you want to leave anybody with anything, let's hear it now. Oh man, it's been great. Thank you for awesome. having me on. And I think that, you know, I'll leave everyone with this, you know, we all go through things in life and you know, one of my favorite quotes is experience in life is not what happens to you. It's what you do with what happens to you. And if the things that happen to you, you don't learn from it and you don't impart a change in your world or impart a change in someone else's world, then that's not an experience. It's just life happening to you and you just kind of let it pass you by. So um, we're going through a trying time in this country right now. We have a major election coming up and, you know, I tell people right now is the time where you can make your voice heard and you can now impart change. But also, I don't care who wins the election because at the end of the day, your moral compass should not be determined by the man or woman in the White House in Washington, D.C. If you don't agree with the morals, the tweets, the, the, the words that come out of the mouth of that man or woman in the White House, that's okay. But does that change your moral compass? Because if it does, you are a weak individual that is now falling into the sheep category. So be your own person, make your own decisions, and when you have experiences in life, learn from it, Don't point the finger of blame to someone else. Don't say I did it because this guy made me do it or this guy sent out a tweet. Do what you want to do. Make your own. We're seeing this big with this coronavirus thing where people are not even using their brain and they are just kind of doing what everyone else is doing and just kind of believing whatever anyone's feeding them. And it is the scariest time in this country's history. It's one of the scariest times. One of the scariest times in this country's history. So learn from your experiences. Awesome. Make sure you benefit from them and use your own mind. Use your own, have your own moral compass. Ground yourself in your own ethics. Don't point the finger at anyone else. Be your, be your own person. Guys, from the man himself, Suresh, phenomenal words. Guys, and one more thing. Oh, go one ahead. Yeah, thing. yeah. Coming from me, Looking like me, and you know my story. We shared some of our Absolutely. personal backgrounds growing up. Absolutely. You heard my story, Andy. Nobody in this country has an excuse for not making it. Preach. Preach, Nobody. my man. Say it look again. Look at me. Look at me. <laughs> Say it again. <laughs> Say so it if again. If you're telling yourself that story, you are lying to yourself. Absolutely. If you're blaming your gender, your skin color, your single mom, your, your broke ass growing up, if you're telling that story, you are lying to yourself and you are creating yourself into an own victim. I am proof positive that you could have the worst of the worst upbringings. And if you want it bad enough, you can make it happen. Wake up. And if you don't want it bad enough, you won't get it. But sure as hell, don't blame anyone else when you don't get it. 
wake up and grind people wake up and grind that's 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 what it is every single day your eyes open you wake up and you fucking grind and that is it and then everything you do and everything you do and this is coming from someone who's my dad i'll go ahead and tell you that my dad woke up and fucking grind every single day and he made he he's a self-made man no help no money family no nothing just i love it work hard good attitude make good choices stay out of trouble and then you fucking grind suresh it. it's been a, it's been a pleasure my man we Guys, gotta do this again we gotta absolutely, do it again ab- absolutely man we gotta get you down here we gotta get you know what i need to come up i know tom has been uh uh professor de blast has had me I got to come up there and train with him. He's been I'm right next door to his school. You got to oh, come. Oh, dude. Yeah, I'll, I, I got to come. So, guys, stay tuned for episode three. This is episode two. Stay tuned for episode three of the Be Effective podcast. Until next time, Suresh, take care, brother. All right. We'll see you guys. Bye,